You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I have a very special guest today, Larry Alex Taunton. He's an award-winning author, a freelance columnist, and a producer. Larry has debated both prominent atheists and Muslims on CNN, Al Jazeera, and on stage. He's organized debates between, you might know him from these debates that he moderates uh, between Christopher Hitchens and John Lennox or Richard Dawkins and John Lennox and uh, David Berlinski and John Le- and uh, Christopher Hitchens and others, if I'm getting that right. And today we're going to talk about his book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, Discovering What Makes America Great and Why We Must Fight to Save It. Welcome, Larry Alex Taunton. Hey, it is great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And just so you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting outside, and uh, we've got to we got to make sure we get this for the people who are uh, who are watching. This is this is the temperature here. Yeah, it's 93 degrees in Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm sitting outside, and um, so just uh, just a heads up. To those who are listening or watching us, if they see beads of sweat, it because you've got me hot. It's just uh, it's just hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you for the sacrifice, Larry. Uh, he had to move outside because the the internet was not quite working where he was before. So, uh, thank you so much for doing that. But before we start on the book, tell us a little bit about your background and the Fixed Point Foundation. Yeah, um, I uh, I was pursuing you know academic degrees and uh, in in history chiefly and got my bachelor's, my master's, working on my PhD in history and European history, Russian history, uh, Marxism, this kind of thing. And of course, the uh, what what y- used to be the academic environments is now what we see in the broader culture, meaning the the university, which is supposed to be a a, a place where there is a, a a great diversity of thought under under a single banner um that has uh that was that was never the thing in academia which was such a disappointment to me as a naive young man entering into that world and really want to engage in the in the realm of ideas and i share my ideas and you share yours and you know uh, a shy, iron sharpening iron you know is is what i what i hoped uh, was nothing of the sort you had to tow a uh a particular ideological line, and if you didn't, you were out, um, or you were punished in a, in some way, and that that might affect you as a particular. This was this was mostly true as a graduate student for me, not as an undergraduate. And I thought, you know, there really needs to be a place, a safe place, for us to debate, to discuss rationally um, the big ideas that that shape the culture, not where where we're attacking each other through ad hominem argument, but rather where we're, uh, I'm hearing what you have to say and you're hearing what I have to say, and we're trying to drive towards some kind of truth. So the debates that you mentioned um, before were all born out of that, that idea because my sense was that in the broader culture, there were other people like me, you know, who, who wanted that. And so I founded um, the Fixed Point Foundation in uh, 2003 and uh, right away, you know, uh, you know, drinking out of a fire hydrant, you know, because uh, we were putting together um, a couple of debates. And I'll be honest, even I um, was surprised by their reaction, meaning that um, the level of interest, I knew there would be interest, but it went way beyond anything that I, I uh, could have imagined, you know, where we're packing out arenas and I mean, big ones. And um, where you have thousands of people, you know, in attendance to see a discussion, you know, between an atheist and a Christian. Um, That was fascinating to me. And we began doing it on a variety of of topics. And uh, so, in other words, it wasn't just atheist versus Christian. Uh, It might be on creation, you know, for example, before 
um, you know, when there was the big, you know, gay marriage push, we, we debated that, that topic of, of gay marriage with a, mm-hmm. uh, a writer at a Will Salatin at, uh, at Slate Magazine and a, uh, a Yale, um, you know, attorney. Uh, we wanted, we wanted to, to, to see that all fleshed out and how people discuss that. What were the ideas? this. And so that, that's kind of my background. And of course, I was trained as a writer. I was trained by the best. And I was publishing um, at the same time. And uh, these days, you know, we do a lot less in terms of, uh, of debates. You know, I debated uh, Muslims and atheists on Al Jazeera, CNN International. Um, as you mentioned, Christopher Hitchens, I debated him in a very prominent debate out in all places, Billings, Montana, because he'd never been to Montana and he was dying. And, he and was you wrote a book, you wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens. Just tell us about, just tell us the title of the book. Yeah, I know you got it. The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. And uh, of course the, uh, the atheist mafia went nuts over that because uh, without bothering to read the book, you know, I was denounced by the Atlantic and by the Guardian and the Independence. And I was, there was a very funny interview on CNN, excuse me, on BBC, um, well, on Newsnight, real ass of a guy, I have to forgive me, but a, a fellow by the name of James O'Brien has me on and immediately starts accusing me of all kinds of things. And he's never bothered to read the book. Um, you know, the, the, the chief accusation was that I'd claimed that Christopher Hitchens had, uh, had converted on his deathbed. And I'd written the entire chapter in anticipation of that very claim. Um, I, I had no way of knowing. Uh, his wife had said he, he didn't convert. Uh, uh, seems reasonable um, to me, though none of us can really see, you know, the heart of the uh, of the individual. But I've gotten to know Christopher well. Never claimed to be part of his inner circle, but uh, Christopher and I, over the years, we've done a number of these debates, and, uh, and then we ended up taking two very lengthy road trips together. One from his home in D.C. to mine in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a uh, I don't remember how long that took us, maybe 12 hours or so, uh, probably a little bit more because he wasn't wasn't feeling well. And then another one through um, uh, through Yellowstone National Park. And what were and, the why, why did he agree to even go on these road trips? You know, Christopher uh, um, had had told me that he hadn't been on a road trip since uh, I believe he said the 60s. Um, and he'd never been through the South, and uh, he felt that the only, as I recall, the only state he'd never been in, the only U.S. Uh, contiguous state he'd never been in, was uh, was Montana. And I said, well, let's make that happen. We'd already agreed to debate one another. And um, and so, well, really where we debate is immaterial. I mean, we could we could do it anywhere. So let's do it in Montana. And uh, And so we did first road trip, which was was from his home um, to mine here in D.C., excuse me, here in Birmingham from his in D.C. It suggested that because, uh, to quote him, um, flying has become a humiliating experience. And um, so <laughs> I saw he, that. Uh, it is. And, and that was before, as bad as it is now, you know, before all the COVID, you know, nonsense. So, um, so we did that and um, we enjoyed each other's company. And, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that an atheist, a uh, a Molotov cocktail uh, throwing atheist and that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Um, We got along with each other quite well. We enjoyed each other's company and that's because we found a lot in common. Um, We, we, we were interested by the big ideas. We're particularly interested in small talk. Um, we enjoy discussing art, literature, history, philosophy, uh, politics. Uh, those were things that we were very interested in. And Christopher had made kind of a big change um, in his life after 9-11. Um, that is, ideologically, I cannot imagine that Christopher would be on board with what we're seeing in the Western world with these mm-hmm. lockdowns, with these uh, these efforts uh, to move towards, um, um, initially at least, a kind of soft tyranny um, with what you're seeing in California, for heaven's sake. Um, I think Christopher Hitchens would unleash his pen um, against the likes of a of a Gavin Newsom or a Cuomo or a uh, a Whitmer in uh, in in Michigan, um, I don't see him being on board with those kind of things. Does that mean that he was a Christian? Well, no. Um, but Christopher was moving uh, in a direction that we could say politically he had had become much more of a conservative, and hence the reason the left um, had sought to um, 
I uh, really eviscerate him um, after 9-11 because he said, I come out in, uh, in support of the police and the military. Uh, that's almost a direct quotation. Um, and uh, I think he said the cops and the soldiers, you know, or something like that. And uh, they were quite panicked uh, by his relationship with me. Um, they did not like the fact that Christopher liked me. So after he died and my book was hailed by uh, Matthews on MSNBC's Hardball, uh, you know how this works. You, The producer reaches out to you and invites you on. And they tell you how much they love you and the host loves you. And you're like, yeah, right. This is kind of a setup. You know, I'm sure uh, I'm I'm sure Hansel and Gretel heard much the same thing. (laughs) And uh, but I actually went on his show and it turned out he genuinely loved the book and uh, told me that it was beautifully written. And um, he said, sell it. Come on. Tell people about this book. It's a wonderful book. And I was so appreciative of that. And then um, the Gospel Coalition named it the Arts and Culture Book of the Year. Um, It was very favorably reviewed um, by um, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The left panicked. Next thing I know, attacked by uh, an unscrupulous David Frum at the the Atlantic and uh, numerous others, who, again, you know, really didn't bother to read the book, but that book remains really uh, um, a proud achievement um, for me because even in attacking it, I think they had to acknowledge that it was a good book, and uh, and they had to attack it unscrupulously. You know, they 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 never addressed the arguments. I would have been happy to have debated any of them on the merits of the book itself. That's not what they want. Uh, they want to just simply mischaracterize you and what you have to say and. And uh, and stoop to the ad hominem. Yeah. Well, and so <clears throat> let's get into the around the world in more than eighty days. Uh, now that's a, a controversial book, by the way. But I know, and, and I book is less so. This, yeah, I know is it is. <laughs> you, you tell it like it's funny because you don't you don't ever hold back, <laughs> which I love. This is what I love about you. Um, and I I love the book and. What you, you kind of talked about this in the beginning of the book that it was sort of a reverse Alexis de Tocqueville sort of venture. Uh, because as you, as you guys may know, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States in the 1800s. I think he was, he was very young. He was like 21 and he, um, he wanted to see democracy. He wrote democracy in America and he wanted to see how this country worked and why it was flourishing so well. And so you sort of did the opposite of that and traveled around the world to a lot of developing countries, third world countries and in other countries in Europe. And what, but first what, what, and you, you traveled with your son, Zachary, I I believe. And then Christopher joined you later, but what compelled you to even write this book? Let let me go back to something you said just a moment ago, um, Beckett. Um, that's an important point. You say that, uh, don't hold back. Um, You know, as a believer, I think Jesus has given us a model, you know, for how we engage with the unbelieving world. And um, I like to think that I'm gentle with those who are genuine seekers. You know, Jesus with the woman at the well, for example, he treats her with great gentleness. Um, The way he engaged with the Pharisees, however, you know, other than a Joseph of Arimathea or, you know, a Nicodemus, Um, is is itself very very different. Um, it was uh, we might even say it was quite harsh. Um, many Christians today, if Jesus were to speak the way he did then, would would condemn him as unloving. I mean, you know this kind of thing. Um, I have I have reached back at kind of a place in my life where you know I've been wounded um, in in so far as you were talking about the founding of Fixed Point Foundation. I was naive enough to believe that I could engage in the realm of big ideas um, that have political ramifications, Um, not necessarily political issues, but issues that have political ramifications, like, for instance, gay marriage. Um, Atheism has, you know, some political ramifications insofar as we've seen the suppression of religious liberty, you know, this kind of thing. And what you discovered all too frequently was the effort to torpedo you, the effort yeah. to you harm. 
um, we're going to, um, you know, uh, undermine your debate because we don't think there should be free speech on this issue. Um, we're going to attack your organization. We're going to threaten you. Um, and uh, somewhere along the way, I would probably venture to say that it was probably after the, the publication of the Hitchens book where I was so unscrupulously attacked. I mean, where you have the New Yorker, the New Yorker running a article suggesting that I'd claimed a deathbed conversion in my book. I mean, where are fact checkers? Uh, where I mean, it's it's astonishing the level of deception and lying. And I mean, and that was before we, what we're witnessing, you know, taking place right then, right now. So, for me, somewhere along the line, the gloves came off, uh, and I felt, you know, I'm playing with house money at this point. I've got I've got nothing to lose. And uh, and also, I'll also say, Beckett, that traveling around the world has given me a level of impatience with. Um, with whining people, meaning I'm, I've, I've grown uh, sick and tired of people who act like they are um, victims uh, when they're not. Um, genuine victims, say someone like my daughter, uh, my adopted daughter, Sasha, who I talk about at some length yeah. in the faith of Christopher Hitchens and in my fact, which, which kind of tells her story. Uh, she was born in uh, in Ukraine, a country that was still running off of the, the uh, accumulated capital um, of socialism, which is to say communism, which is to say um, atheism. Um, and she suffered um, extraordinary abuse at the hands of people who treated individuals like they're just raw materials. I mean, children were fed out of dog bowls. When um, they thought you'd misbehave, put a leash on you and make you lap up and eat your dog bowl. Uh, It was their way of saying to you, that's what you're worth. Um, The level of abuse. And and by the way, this is throughout the Eastern European orphanage system, unless it's been mitigated by Christians who have come in typically from the West, though not, not, not always. So as you can imagine, um, and then you add to that my academic background and the things I've seen in Africa, the things I've seen in Eastern Europe, things I've seen in Asia and South America. Um, and I see a Black Lives Matter come along and uh, and basically try to shoehorn American society into a system. This is a movie I've seen before. And, uh, and so uh, you better believe I'm going to take a very strong stance against it. And uh, and if I go down, then then let it be said on my tombstone, he went down fighting, you know. So I want to bequeath to my own children and to my grandchildren the kind of society that you and I enjoy—not a perfect one, uh, a country that has its sins, but a country that has a philosophy of redemption. I mean, a, a means of moving beyond our past, which I would say that that we had post Civil War and with. Um, with constitutional amendments and with uh, uh, the civil rights movement where we were seeing the, this kind of progress and where there is now an attempt, a dishonest attempt to take us back to a place where we haven't been in decades and to suggest America, which is the freest, most tolerant country on the face of the earth is somehow an evil society. I've been around the world. I've been in almost 60 countries. I, I I know that there's not a single country I've been in, Beckett, that people aren't clamoring to get into the United States. I mean, we saw the images of those Afghans falling off of those planes. Yeah. I mean, if America is such an awful place, why is that happening? So, yes, for me, I decided to write this book because I thought, look, we live in the age of, uh, you know, of Zoom, of Skype calls. Um, where people are used to virtual tours, the data says that 69% of Americans have never been abroad. I would wager that the other 31%, the majority of them, have been on some Caribbean cruise. They got drunk in Tijuana. They they maybe went on a fishing trip to Canada, possibly a mission trip um, somewhere, and that pretty much is it. And uh, and so I, I I invented a term, a coined a term that I call the traveler's fallacy, which you'll recall from reading the book. And so you have a friend, we know someone who let's say stayed at the four seasons uh, on the Nile in Cairo. And they come back and say, Oh, I love Egypt. I could live there. (laughs) And I think 
Well, you think that because you stayed at the Four Seasons on the Nile, or you know, let's let's change it. You you stayed at the uh, you know the peninsula along the uh, the Champs Elysees. France isn't like that for most French. Um, they are just under taxation. There, it's a spiritually dead country. It's a hopeless country, and people are trying to get out. You know, so this is the reality of the world. So I saw an opportunity to take people on a virtual tour and say, let's consider what the world is like, um, and let's go to those countries that the left would hold up to us as a model for what they think America should be. Yeah, and it's funny because I, <laughs> I actually spent two weeks at the peninsula in uh, Bangkok, two weeks in Manila, two weeks in Hong Kong and two weeks in Beijing. I happened to be doing a job. I was working on a job, uh, you know, production designing for their hotel, but uh, it's a very different world when you're staying at the peninsula in Hong Kong, in in Bangkok, it's like a very different world there there than it is out in the, in the real city. Exactly. And, uh, and so most people really don't see what the world is like. They don't experience it. They don't know what daily life is like. And by the way, I want to be clear uh, these days, particularly post accident, I had a massive accident some years ago uh, six years ago, I, I stay in nice places, but I go, but I go out and engage with the real world, with real society, both at high levels and low. And uh, and what you see is, uh, you know, Christians are persecuted all over Africa, being murdered, slaughtered at the hands of uh, of um, uh, Islamic radicals, Islamic militants. Um, that you see the, uh, you know, the failed Marxist societies in Asia uh, and in South America. You see that, interestingly enough, in former communist bastions like uh, uh, Russia and China and um, uh, Vietnam, they don't believe in Marxist economics anymore. Those countries are not, not communist. We refer to them that way. I mean, we don't necessarily, you know, speak of Russia in those terms. We do Vietnam and China. They're fascist. Those countries are fascist now. They are, are attempting to combine a, um, a uh, free market a capitalist society, yeah, market with totalitarianism. And it's the same thing that we're, we're seeing uh, an effort to do in the West. Yeah. And it's uh, it's getting scarier and scarier. And so let's let's go through some of the countries. I mean, you talked about China and Russia. Uh, what about you, you call I love that you did that. You called New Zealand the the kind of like the Seattle of yeah. uh, South Southeast Asia. What what do you mean by that? What what's what's New Zealand all about? Well, and of course, interestingly enough, um, if you watch the news, I mean, New Zealand has gone into total lockdown. Um, New Zealand tends to follow what's happening in Australia and uh, Australia, uh, you know, reacts to a single uh, COVID case. You know, the uh, um, the country goes into complete lockdown and we're seeing now riots and people who are re- reacting um, against that. New Zealand, listen, listen, it's a beautiful country. It's a country of roughly five million people. And uh, I-, I was on the North Island, the uh, the South Island. Um, I am told, haven't been to the South Island, is especially beautiful. Um, you know, we rented a, uh, a Land Rover Defender and went up and down um, the uh, the coastline, engaged with the, the people of New Zealand. Listen, it's a beautiful country. It's a, um, it's a stable um, democracy. It is a country that is following um, the, the left-wing politics, the worst of American politics and culture. Um, and that's unfortunate. You're seeing a lot of people from your part of the country um, who are moving um, to New Zealand or at least buying property there. And you're seeing New Zealand drifting in this direction. And, uh, and it's unfortunate because they've embraced absolutely the worst of, um, of Western culture. And is the, I mean, I, I, I always, I've talked about this before on the show, but does this go back not only to the sixties, but to back to Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the, the Genevan philosopher, this kind of this, where this is all coming from. And, and especially right now in the United States, what, why is this happening now in terms of going in that direction, in terms of going into socialism? What, where, where is this coming from? 
Well, I think we've been drifting in this direction for a long time. I think there are several reasons, Beckett. Um, you know, I, as a, uh, you know, as, as someone who's trained as a historian, I, I think the lack of teaching history is an issue. You know, my generation, um, we were taught what communism was. We, uh, we were taught um, the, what, what that worldview was. We were taught what socialism was. Uh, my generation and older has a, um, has a very negative view of, um, of socialism. Um, I think uh, a younger generation that has known no suffering, no real economic, um, you know, deprivation. They've not known uh, war. Um, they've known nothing but plenty and plenty on a scale that's, you know, staggering, say, to my parents, to your parents, especially to our grandparents, you know, who lived through the, uh, the Great Depression. Um, I think the world, um, they've invented um, a kind of suffering and they've invented a narrative um, of America as an, as an awful place that's just born out of sheer ignorance, mm-hmm. um, a lack of understanding of history, a lack of understanding what our forebearers um, sacrificed that we might have the things that they did not have. So that's, that's one reason. And of course, this is reflected in polls. You know, we have seen in polls uh, over the last several decades a, um, a rehabilitation of socialism in the eyes of many American people, where polls reflect that Americans having a, um, a much more favorable view. I've seen it in the church, where a lot of people don't understand that socialism is antithetical to a biblical worldview. It is uh, in no way, shape, or form is it and indeed, it begins with the premise that there is no God, um, that that uh, that utopia can be established uh, on Earth. So- and in the twenty, and obviously in the twentieth century, over hundred million people were died because of Marxism, socialism, communism, and you know Mao's China and Stalin and Lenin's Russia and and other in Pol Pot in Cambodia and other places. So we that's that's the kind of narrative that doesn't get told. Yes. Or that what they say back in is they say this, well, that, that was Mao. That was Stalin. They're there. They got it wrong. We'll get it right. That's the, that's the kind of arrogance that we're dealing with. You know, there, there are those. Um, and I want I may have even quoted her in all three of my books. I'm not sure if I quoted her in, um, in around the world in more than 80 days, but Sheila Fitzpatrick, Russian historian at um, the university of she was. I don't know if she is now, but she wrote a marvelous little book called The Russian Revolution that I was required to read as a as a graduate student. And in it, she says that, uh, you know, that all revolutions have fraternity, liberty as their slogans, but they all end in disappointment. Yeah. And um, that they all begin with the idea that, uh, that they have nothing but um, uh, disdain for history, for traditions, for received wisdom. Um, and, uh, and all of them are sure that society can be tabula rasa, which they like right. the principles of the revolution. I mean, you know, we, we mentioned the issue of gay marriage. I mean, arrogance must you must have to think that you can just discard millennia of human tradition, um, and experimentation and say, well, we no longer define, um, as between a man and a woman, or let us suppose, um, you know, this idea that we can uh, somehow do socialism better. Uh, It's never been done better. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I thought it was funny when he was running for president, he said that we needed to bottle our country after Denmark. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, so smart. Yeah, you talk about that. You talk about Denmark and Scandinavia in your book. (laughs) You're like, the, you know, the, they're always the model, the example of successful socialism. But could dispel that, dispel that fallacy for us, please. Denmark is, uh, you know, this idea that Scandinavia is a, um, you know, a bastion of um, uh, socialism. It just simply is not true. Um, and that's why I saved, by the way, Scandinavia for the end of the book. Um, because I knew those were the countries that the left, you know, primarily holds up, and Western Europe um, as an example to us. And I'll also say that those are countries that are really, really struggling with their own immigration problems. 
Uh, many Europeans would say to you that Americans have avo- America has avoided many of those problems by having very uh, two marvelous, um, you know, anti tank ditches, you know, called the Atlantic and Pacific, but also because we have generally taken immigration very seriously, have um, very careful about how uh, who we let into the country until the last decade, and. Now um, we're we're going to reap the whirlwind for that. But Europeans have generally appreciated that uh, that America hasn't made the same mistakes that Europe has made. And and talk about uh, London. And you you know you went to London and um, England. You said that England is basically Britain is America fast forwarded. And it, just for example, like Prince Charles. And I, I remember when he said this, he said they it used to be the defender of the faith was the, the yeah. slogan of the crown. And he said he now he changed it to defender of the faiths and yes. talk about England and talk about how that's just like absolute nonsense, nonsensical to say defenders of the defender of the faiths. Well, you know, I uh, I was educated in uh, in uh, partially uh, educated in London in the early 90s. And um, so, you know, these days, you know, when I'm there, and I'm, I'm there probably twice a year, you know, typically for the last um, 20 years or so, each time I come back, um, it's, it's, it's a little different. Um, the uh, UK, uh, when I was there in the early 90s, was still very British. Um, today, that just simply isn't the case. And if you want to experience Britain, you need to go to the colonies. The colonies are by far more British than is Britain itself, as the uh, uh, as the 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 Brits themselves will um, will tell you. But uh, England is a country that has, uh, or or rather, the UK as a whole um, is is a bit soulless. Um, they're no longer proud of their own traditions. The uh, you know under the acids cynicism, the kind of thing that we're now seeing in this country, were first done there. Where you know the Union Jack is racist, um, the monarchy is racist, um, our history is racist. You know this kind of thing where you could no longer be proud to be a Brit. Um, well, that's exactly the game, the 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 playbook that we're seeing in this country. So now, if you uh, you wave a flag, well, you're a fascist. If you uh, stand for the you know the national anthem, you're you're a, a racist, you know, this kind of, this kind of thing. Right. And uh, that is what was taking place all over Europe post-World War II in a very big way. And, uh, and as a result has uh, given us a, a Britain that is, um, is lacking in any kind of identity and, uh, and confidence. So uh, to go to, to London today, um, and which isn't, you know, you don't want to make the mistake of thinking Paris represents France. It doesn't. Right. Right. You don't want to make the same mistake, you know, that New York. I often joke with people, say, oh, I've been to America. Let me guess, you've been to New York or L.A. Well, you know, so-called flyover country, you know, is different. Um, it's different people. They're much more traditional. That's more typical America, actually. Outside of L.A. is you know, a lot of people, you know, don't like California because the perception of California. Well, Northern California is, is, is another culture, as I think you very well know. Yes. And um, so uh, you don't want to make the mistake that London is uh, indicative of the entire island. Um, but nonetheless, um, a globalist uh, kind of spirit, or should I say a spiritless globalism, uh, is what seems to prevail there. And that's, uh, that to me is tragic because I grew up with very strong British traditions. You know, my mother is from Vancouver Island. My father, my father, you'll like this Beckett is from, as we say here in the colloquial Alabama from LA. And that means lower Alabama. That's the, uh, that's the part of this state where people speak with that old sonorous, uh, Southern accent. That's like this. Alabama. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, but it, but that's that's an that's an old southern accent that's dying. It's a it's a beautiful southern it's accent. It's beautiful. I love that. I love the lilt of that accent. It's amazing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a southern accent that's uh that's represents uh education actually. It's a it's not the hick accent and if you don't know it, you uh you you might miss it. But yeah, I you know, I grew up with these uh these interesting traditions of um you know uh um you know crumpets and 
and tea and uh, and grits and uh, and biscuits, you know. So, you know, with my with my southern father and uh, my um, my Canadian um, from Vancouver Island, British Columbia mother, who was you know who was raised with all these very British traditions. So you can imagine that for me to have gone, um, you know, and to see what it has become. And of course, again, I've been going there for 30 years, but um, it is a a rather soulless place. And um, it has embraced uh, every kind of um, perverse ideology. And it's become a police state, London itself. Um, You don't go anywhere that you're not on. I, I think the data is uh, at any given moment, you're being watched by three different cameras. And I know they would say that that's for the purpose of your safety. I'd prefer to take some risks. Yeah. Freedom itself has risks. And uh, and I embrace them. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, you talk about this, too, in the book, Germany and, and France uh, have gone the same way. But you talk about Nigeria, too. You went to Nigeria, which was brave of you. And, uh, and tell us about the Christians in Nigeria versus the Christians in the, in the U S and the Christians in Nigeria's kind of view of, of our obsession with LGBT issues here. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting Beckett because I recall a conversation with a, um, a Nigerian Christian, a man who was an elder, um, in his church, you know, on the vet, uh, um, a leader in the church, not a pastor, one of its leaders. And um, he had access to, um, I think it's Daystar that he, that he watched, or, you know, one of the, the, the Christian satellite channels that broadcast out of the United States. And he asked me with a completely straight face, um, are, are, are all Christians in America, are they gay? <laughs> and, um, and I laughed out loud, just as you did. And, and I said, why in the world you think that and uh, and he gestured as his tv he said we see that you know your denominations are all embracing this mm-hmm. and i thought well okay well he's got a point um i can understand why he would uh would think this might be the case um here and I, of course i had to explain to him you know the, pol- the the political nature of the discussion and um the way that many of these things have been packaged um to christians critical race theory for instance has been uh, packaged to Christians as a very Christian thing. I mean, how can you be, I mean, to be opposed to, you're just admitting that you're a racist and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this is, it's the old, um, uh, when did you stop beating your wife routine? (laughs) Yeah. You know, that that kind of thing. And um, Nigerian um, Christians that I engaged, um, these were people under severe um, persecution um, from the Fulani herdsmen militia, um, some under um, Boko Haram in the mm-hmm. in the north, uh, who are I want to be clear, you know, who are Muslim organizations, uh, Muslim groups, and who are acting on Islam teaching. Um, so-called moderate uh, Muslims um, are just simply people who do not take their own holy books. Um, the, own teaching very seriously. I joke that they're like Methodists. Um, and, uh, and, and again, to the Methodists out there, I was once a Methodist, so I can make these jokes. Um, but the Methodists I knew at least didn't take scriptural teaching um, uh, particularly seriously. And, uh, and we've seen that, you know, in the, uh, in the Methodist church in many ways. And uh, many of the so-called um, uh, radical Muslims, they're not radicals, actually. They're, they're orthodox, meaning right. they're taking seriously the Quran the Hadith, they're, they're supposed to model their life after the life of Muhammad. Muhammad fought more than 80 battles. Uh, he beheaded um, thousands of people, 800 Jews in a single um, He had many wives. Um, he, uh, he was of the view that rape was, you know, okay. Um, he married a, a nine-year-old. I mean, uh, let's be clear. And, uh, and, and Christians, by contrast, were to, were to model the life of Jesus, who had uh, uh, who fought no wars, who killed no one, um, who um, modeled instead for us peace, forgiveness. This is the person um, that we're to model our lives on. So um, the Nigerians um, were were very upset by, at the time that I was, which I think was 2016, 
the take that was um, that they consistently heard in the West, which was that Islam was a religion of peace. You heard this after 9-11. You heard it after Charlie Hebdo in 2015. Right. That, you know, it's an, and I understand for practical reasons why politicians were saying that, because they didn't want to inflame the, uh, the two billion Muslims around the world. But it's dishonest. And it sets up uh, a, a view that's um, that puts us in harm's way. Yeah. And then you get to I mean, you went to so many other places to South America and South Africa and uh, to Switzerland and and Egypt even and um, other places. But let's let's come back home and talk about. So just. What is the core? Because we, you talk about American excep- ex- exceptionalism in your book. What's the correlation between American excep- exceptionalism and Christianity? Yeah, American exceptionalism is an idea that the left, of course, as you can imagine, uh, that's racist, that's nonsense, um, that's wrong. Um, no, it's not. Um, I, you know, the the premise, the very very big premise of my book around the world in more than 80 days was I was playing idea. If we accept that human nature is the world, uh, human nature is the same the world over, which every intelligent person I know would accept that premise. Then the question becomes, why is North Korea like North Korea? Why is America not like North Korea? How do we, how do we account for the, the massive differences. Well, you know, historians would say that there are there are numerous outside forces, which I would agree with this, like geography, for instance, plays an enormously important um, role in this. You know, the, the Belgians have been uh, the unfortunate um, doormat for invading country, uh, invading armies, you know, particularly coming from Germany into France. Um, so, you know, geography matters. Um, Japan has a lack natural resources and uh, uh, Switzerland is mountainous. These things play a role in the development um, of countries. But at bottom, the, the, the primary thing that, that um, determines the, uh, the, the fate of nations, determines their, their national characteristics, are the ideas that they adopt. So um, if you, for instance, you adopt an Islamic worldview that has a, a very um, detrimental effect on the, the way your nation develops. I mean, we know that Islamic states um, are uh, suppress free speech, they suppress freedom, and they're cookie cutter societies. I mean, right down to their architecture, uh, they're, they look the same. Um, a Christian societies, or at least um, societies that were based in some broad sense on a Christian worldview, look very different. Now, the Western Europe is still off of its accumulated capital of um, uh, of, uh, of a Judeo-Christian worldview. It's reflected in their laws. It's reflected in many of their attitudes, even among people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I would often say to Christopher Hitchens, uh, you know, who we were, we were discussing earlier, and I think he knew this was true. Christopher when I asked him, for instance, in an interview that you can find on online on our YouTube page, do you agree with Peter Singer, you know, the 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 um, Princeton bioethicist and atheist who's willing to follow his atheism to its yeah. logical conclusions? Do you believe, uh, do you agree with Singer when he says that mothers should get 28 days with a newborn child to determine whether or not to keep it or to euthanize it? Singer compares infants with piglets saying they have no more value, possibly even less. Christopher would say, I get very uncomfortable comparing human life with piglets. And uh, maybe I should debate Singer. Uh, maybe, maybe that should happen. But I said, do you agree, though, that Singer is consistent with an atheistic worldview? And he essentially agreed that he was. In other words, Christopher was acknowledging my worldview is not consistent with that. I'm not prepared to take my atheism to that point. Well, that's because Christopher had, of uh, of the Britain of the 1950s, he had 
inhaled deeply of a Christian culture. He was right. taught scripture. He went to, um, you know, in boarding school, he went to chapel services. Uh, he was taught broadly a, a Judeo-Christian morality. And that informed his sensibilities. Now, the dangerous thing, I, I believe, is what we're seeing is the the ideological heirs to Hitchens, to a Dawkins, they don't have that in their background. They didn't go to VBS. They didn't go to Sunday school. So they are willing to take atheism to a place that guys like Hitchens and Dawkins have not been willing to take it. So um, my argument has been that what, what makes America is exceptional is not because we're American, you know, by golly, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're better because we're, we're American. Well, oh, um, society is heavily touched by the gospel. It has shaped our art, our literature, our laws, um, our views on benevolence. America's the most generous country in the world. And uh, the data supports this. So um, generally speaking, we can interact with people in society with an understanding. And again, I say generally speaking, and this is changing rapidly, but yes. in my part of the country, still has a lot of way to go before it will you know, change utterly. But even when you're dealing with people who aren't Christians, they more or less accept a Christian worldview. And my my European friends, when they come to this country, probably probably you, if you were to come here, I recall sitting in a you know in a coffee shop, and I think it was John Lennox actually who you mentioned earlier, who's sitting across um, from me, and um, a woman sitting next to us at another table who I do not know, I've never met her, a businesswoman, she's working on her laptop, and she turns, do you mind watching my purse and my laptop while I go to the restroom? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And Lennox goes, (laughs) he said, in Britain, in Britain, her laptop or purse would be gone instantaneously. Yeah. And does that happen often here? And I said, yeah, people do that all the time. I I do it. You know, if I'm, I'm in a place, you know, I'll say, Hey, you know, can you watch this for me? And, uh, um, that's, that's, that's the holdover of a Christian culture where the assumption is that people um, share your worldview, that they believe in private property, they believe it's wrong to steal, and they believe it's appropriate to help other, other people. Um, so, you know, we're, we're starting to see the fallout of the suppression of Christianity from the, uh, the marketplace, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and so, well... You said, okay, so I was going to ask you kind of uh, in closing uh, to kind of give us some hope. <laughs> is there hope or is there hope to kind of turn the ship? And what, I mean, what do you think of the future of, of what's going on in this country in terms of Marxism and all the left and all that stuff? What, where do you see this going? I, well, first of all, I have much hope. Um, and so do you. And so does any believer, you know, who was. Yeah. Is- to this podcast. One of the most uh, misquoted passages in all of scripture is um, all things work together for good. I'll hear people say this and see it on, on Twitter and this, this kind of thing. All things work together for good. And I want to say, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't get to say that unless even Jesus Christ, it's all things work together for good um, for those who are called according to his purpose. Yeah. Who are called according to his purposes. Uh, for those of us who believe in him, we have an eternal hope. So however things work out here, in the end, we win. I don't fully understand all the symbolism in, uh, in Revelation, but I get that much. In the end, we win. And, uh, and, and that should give us tremendous hope. Second thing, something that can be said for the United States that can't be said for Western Europe is we know the number of people who say that Christians in this country is a very high number. I think roughly um, 75% self-identify as Christians. 26% say that they are evangelicals. Those are people who have answered affirmatively to questions like, do you believe Jesus is the, uh, the Son of God? Do you believe he's the only way? Do you believe in a heaven and hell? You know, this kind of thing. Um, that's, that's an enormous number, you know, one in four people, um, in this country. 
what we are seeing right now is the tail wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, the left is extremely well organized, and they have targeted the levers of power, big tech, Hollywood, um, politics, uh, legislatures, um, public schools, uh, universities. Uh, they have targeted um, these things. The uh, conservatives um, and, uh, and believers, we have to become much more organized and we have to be willing to become much more politically active. Um, I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, that we worship the state. Donald Trump is, you know, it's not our savior. No politician is. But, uh, but I, I think Christians are very foolish to not engage the political process. Uh, and there's a kind of selfishness in it, honestly. I mean, uh, as I said before, what world do I want to leave to my children and to my children? I want to leave them uh, a freedom um, to choose and to be what they, 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 they want to be. And um, whatever that looks like, however that plays out, I want to give them those opportunities. And we are creeping towards totalitarianism. So I, that, uh, I, I feel some hope. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping also that the left has grossly overplayed their hand. I mean, we're seeing, you know, the arrogance of, of left uh, in the recall of Governor Newsom, um, in the polling numbers that suggest that Larry Elder, you know, is running in a dead heat with Newsom. Um, and, uh, and I think elsewhere. Um, so so I, I think there's a lot for us to be optimistic about. Well, good. Well, we'll leave it on that note. And uh, we're going to have to have you back because we, I want to get into your, your thoughts on homeschooling versus public school and be delighted and, uh, and other things. There are a lot of other things I want to talk about, but the book Next guys will have a better, a better, uh, internet connection. Yes. And hopefully <laughs> we can get you a better internet connection. Uh, and, but in the meantime, guys, we're going to put the link below for around the world in more than 80 days. I really, uh, I really, encourage you guys to get this book. It's great. It's entertaining. It's, edu- it's, it's edifying. It's educational. And, um, and yeah, and thank you. And we'll put the link down to, to the fixed point foundation as well, but thank you, Larry, Alex Taunton for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me Beckett. I enjoyed it. Great. All right. Thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett cook show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. recent survey, parents reported that 52% of homeschooled children need learning accommodations. These parents need practical advice, encouragement, and hope to fuel their homeschooling efforts. The Empowering Homeschool Conversations podcast is where parents gain wisdom on how to teach unique learners successfully at home, like Laura, who recently told us, I needed this episode. I don't need a fancy curriculum or need to be a special ed teacher to teach my son. You have given me hope. To listen now, go to Life Audio or search Empowering Homeschool Conversations on your favorite podcast app.